Welcome back to Tzarech Iyun, a podcast from Yeshivat Oraita. This month, we're excited to introduce an alternative format our podcast will take, another kind of Tzarech Iyun discussion. We're calling it Talking and Learning. Every other month, Rav David Silverstein will host a guest in conversation about a text of their choosing. We hope you enjoy our latest installment. The Talking and Learning podcast is a unique opportunity for two people to come together to unpack, study, share, and reflect on a classical Jewish text. The purpose of the learning is not only to understand the larger values and implications that emerge from the text, but to also think about the way in which the text personally impacts our lives and can serve as a springboard for broader spiritual reflection and introspection. Okay, everybody, welcome. This is uh, David Silverstein. I'm sitting here with my dear friend and colleague, Rav Davidal Weinberg. Hello, everybody. Rav Davidal, so we're trying to think of a podcast that would complement the exciting Tzarechiyun podcast, and we thought that maybe we would come up with a podcast which would be a little bit more textual, which would have two rebellion really sitting over a text, Amari Makom, and really trying to unpack it, thinking about the religious, theological, personal reflections that emerged from the text. And then we came up with the idea, talking in learning. And if I say to you, or Dovel, you've been in Shivot for many, many years, so just emotionally, sort of instinctively, if I were to say to you, what, what exactly is talking and learning? Like, what, what would you say that means to you? So when we're thinking about talking and learning, uh, one of the amazing stories that comes to mind, there's a story about Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, when uh, the Mir Yeshiva was fleeing to Shanghai, and they were on the boats, Things got very rocky um, at a certain point in the middle of the trip. And some of the boys who had all sort of gathered in the hull of the ship were all saying, where are we, where are we, where are we? And at some point in the middle of this sort of gigantic burst of you know, people just breaking into tears, Rav Chaim Shmulevitz said to them, we're in Shmeitza Gimel. Right? He said, we're, we're in the middle of Shav Shmeitza. The Shav Shmeitza is a famous book of Lamdas. And he said, like, when we left, when we left the yeshiva, we were in the middle of studying at a little chabura we had, where we were in the middle of the third of those seven very elaborate scholarly teachings. And so the sort of meaning of that story for me is that no matter where a person finds themselves, it doesn't matter if you're on a tramp or if you're on a bus or if you're just walking with a friend somewhere, you know, the question of where am I can always be contextualized somewhere in the middle of, you know, what am I learning? What am I thinking about? What are the higher values that I'm striving for? Yeah, so on some level, um, sitting here with you is not that different than what happens when the two of us are in the car together on our way up to the north on a T-wheel or something and uh, sharing whatever latest thing it is that we're learning and kind of bouncing ideas off of each other. The difference here is that there's a microphone in front of each of us. And there's also a text, which is, you know, usually talking and learning happens in a way where it's what, do you, what are you learning recently? How, you know, what, what are some new things that you're thinking about? And uh, it becomes kind of a curation of ideas, bouncing off of a colleague, bouncing off of a friend, bouncing off of a chavrusa that you've been learning with in yeshiva. And um, more than sitting the chavrusa in, let's say, a morning seder or an afternoon seder, at a certain stage in life, you know, talking and learning becomes just the, what you talk about when you're at lunch, what you talk about when you're driving somewhere with a friend. If you're someone who's passionate about learning, then sharing ideas becomes a natural outgrowth of just any conversation. And so I hope what will 
happen here is it'll be a natural kind of dialogue over a text, over something that we're both passionate about, which is Talmud Torah, learning Torah, and try to get a window into one particular uh, view of what it means to learn Torah. Yeah, I remember when I was younger, I'm, I'm sure you can relate to this since we're not that far off in age, but uh, there was a very famous movie called Back to the Future. And in Back to the Future, there's a guy named Marty McFly, and he goes on this space-traveling car and takes him back in time. And one of the amazing parts of the movie is that he uses certain sort of linguistic innuendos that made sense where he was from, but sort of don't make sense in the past. And there's moments where he's trying to dialogue with people using words and using um, all different phrases, and people are looking at him and saying, like, what exactly does that mean? And I like to think about that as sort of a metaphor for thinking about what the idea of, like, talking and learning means to me. Like, imagine, for example, we were able to ask Marty McFly to borrow his, his space mobile, and we could travel back in time. Right, so imagine if we traveled back in time to the time of Rebbe Kiva Eger. So I don't speak fluent Yiddish. I mean, I can understand abyssal, but I definitely don't speak it uh, perfectly. But I would be able to communicate with Rebbe Kiva Eger through the language of learning. And let's say, for example, Marty McFly gave me another shot at his car and said, you have no, two more stops. So it's okay, I want to go to 14th century Franco-Germany. And I, and I walk around Franco-Germany. I don't speak, you know, German or French. But then all of a sudden, I hear the Balotoso saying, you know, Venera Lee, and I understand exactly what's going on. But then I said, you know what, Marty, I just need one more shot at this car. And Marty says, okay, for you, I'll give you one more. And I want to go back, really back in time, to Bavel. And I know nothing about Zoroastrianism or the life of Babylonians, but all of a sudden, I do hear Abayim Rava engaging in dialogue. And I think for me, talking and learning really is a language that connects Jews throughout the generations. And kind of what you have double were picking up before on is that, you know, when you're in the car and you're talking and learning, it not only is a form of intellectual engagement, but it's a way for two people to really connect. So I thought this idea of like having Rebbeim talking and learning should hopefully be an inspirational model for people in general and the larger world listening to this podcast to think about what are they learning, how can they share learning with others, and how can they sort of use learning as a medium to sort of be the shared language that Jewish people really talk throughout the world. I just want to pick up on that for one second. One of, the, one of my uh, favorite parts about either picking someone up on a tramp, you know, if there's like a, a bucher on the side of the road, especially someone who's not always dressed the part, um, and you, you pick up somebody on the road, and all of a sudden you say, oh, what are you learning? You start talking to them, and you have something to share with them about uh, the mesechta that they're learning, or uh, you ask them, you know, something on the parsha, or you're sitting next to someone on the bus if you're taking public transportation, and there's some chassid sitting next to you. You don't have to necessarily go in a space mobile, you know, back into the future. You can sometimes cross-culturally people who didn't grow up in, let's say, the milieu of uh, 90s America, and you can't necessarily make nirvana references to them, but you can talk to them in learning, and you can all of a sudden just break down certain barriers that otherwise would have made the car ride less interesting and also kept you further apart from another Jew. Yeah, I've actually had that exact experience. I've, I've picked up people. Uh, I don't do it anymore, but I used to pick up trempers sometimes driving from Jerusalem to Modin, and I would intentionally pick up uh, yeshiva guys or Hasidish guys because I thought it'd be, you know, I don't get much interaction with Hasidish guys. So I always pick them up. We always talk about different uh, Hasidic texts, and like they were looking at me first, like I'm an alien. Like who is this non-Hasidic guy? And knows you know has some access to Hasidic literature. But all of a sudden, you know, five minutes into the ride, we were best friends, right? And we were best friends because we were literally talking and learning. So I thought that today, um, Rav David, I know that you have a very very exciting project you've been working on for a while, 
and that is an English translation of Rav Cook's Orot HaTorah. And um, this is really exciting, not only for you personally, but really for all of people who are a part of Kla Yisrael who like to learn Rav Cook. And oftentimes Rav Cook is very difficult to understand. And you've done an amazing service to be able to translate and provide a commentary and really make Rav Cook accessible to as many people as possible. Before we get to the text, I thought we would talk just for a few minutes about Rav Cook and maybe sort of have some reflections about sort of Rav Cook specifically in the English-speaking world. I'll tell you from my experience and tell me if you disagree. You know, I spent a significant amount of time in yeshivot, um, American yeshivot. I'm in the U.S., and Rav Cook, for the most part, at least in the late 90s, uh, early 2000s, was just not part of the vocabulary. I, I don't think I ever heard somebody talking about Rav Cook. I certainly knew who Rav Cook was, and I had an awareness of his greatness. But in terms of learning his Torah, I was totally ignorant. In fact, when I got to Israel, I taught initially at an Israeli yeshiva, and there Rav Cook was everywhere. You, know, you couldn't open up any safer or anything without someone referencing Rav Cook. And it was assumed that I was some type of like intellectual alien. Like, how could it be, you know, this guy who come from, came from America doesn't know Rav Cook? And they used to say to me, galuti, you're such a diaspora Jew. And I felt distant. I felt, what's going on here? Like, what's wrong with me? Why do they never teach me Rav Cook? So just out of curiosity from your own experience, like, why do you think it is that, let's say, for example, in the YU circles or in sort of larger centrist Orthodox circles, uh, Divri Machshava is learned, right? And there certainly are people who are deeply invested in Divri Machshava. But... With notable exceptions, for the most part, you know, Rav Cook isn't necessarily that well-known. So just experientially, in terms of your own encounter with Rav Cook's thought, what, why do you think that is the case? Why is it that Rav Cook is really a figure who is deeply learned in religious Zionist circles, but in Israel, but in America, you know, he's certainly, people are aware of him, but it's not like every uh, guy in YU has what they call the Shas Halavan, right? The, the collection of Rav Cook's writings, which are all printed in white uh, hardcover. So I'm a little bit loath to answer the question as to why other people do or don't do what they do and their background. Um, but what I can share is that I had the good fortune of um, being exposed to Rav Cook somewhat. Uh, I, I grew up in America, and I grew up in an out-of-town America, as it were. I grew up in Lower Marion, Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia. And uh, the Rav of the Shul, where I, uh, where I davened, where my family davened, Lower Marion Synagogue, was Rabbi Avram is still uh, Rabbi Avram Yitzchak Levine. He's the uh, Rabbi Emeritus of the shul now. And um, Rabbi Levine has the distinction of being the first person named after Rav Kook. Ritzvi uh, Huda used to refer to him as Hashem HaRishon. And there's an interesting story about how and why he was named after Rav Kook. But from a young age, I was already exposed to the reality of a person named Rav Kook. I never actually studied anything that Rav Kook had written. And when I came to Israel for the year, when I studied in yeshiva, I had a little bit of exposure here and there, but it was never something that um, became sort of like a mamalashon in yeshiva. I didn't, you know, I went to a, a yeshiva that is certainly proud of, of Eretz Yisrael and proud of the Torah produced in Eretz Yisrael, Torah's Eretz Yisrael, but there wasn't necessarily, maybe there even was a class, but it wasn't like something that everyone was learning. And probably the main reason for that is that Rav Cook's writing is really hard. Rav Cook uh, was a synthesizer. He, you know, studied everything from philosophy outside the base medrash to Jewish philosophy in the base medrash and uh, Kabbalah, Hasidus. He was a master of, of, of learning in Nigla. And Rav Kook doesn't really quote sources. Even quoting Psukim is not really something that he does. He's just kind of uh, free consciousness of writing. And it's a challenging thing to be able to just pick up on the language. Rav Kook makes up his own words. Um, and so 
I would say that classical, you know, yeshiva curriculum didn't really incorporate Rav Kook because it's a challenge, I think, to be able to, to give over. That made the, cha- the challenge of translating it, um, you know, slightly, uh, yeah. let's say it was, it was a good effort. I, I put in a, an effort into translating, but um, I hope that this will continue the, I mean, there are people who, who've been doing translations of Rav Kook for, for at least the past uh, 20, 30 years. People have been trying to translate Rav Kook's writing and uh, this is just another shot at attempting to break open something which is, is definitely a challenging poetic and laced with um, all types of maramakomos that he's not, he's not telling us that they're there. I'll just share one anecdote. Um, Rav Kook wrote a sefer called Reish Milin. And uh, there are some commentaries on Reish Milin. There were commentaries that were written. It's one of the few books that he actually wrote himself. Uh, most of the books are just from notebooks that were sort of edited by his students or by his son, Rav Tzvi Yehuda. Reish Milin, he actually wrote himself. And there's a, it's a tiny little book. It's maybe, you know, 10, 15 pages long, the entire book, in book form. And one of Rav Kook's students wrote a 1,000-page commentary on Reish Milin. And when Rav Kook saw it, he, he finished it while Rav Kook was still alive. When Rav Kook saw it, he said, you got all the references to the Kabbalah, but you missed all the philosophy references. In other words, even for this genius in Torah who was able to catch all of Rav Kook's breath in Torah knowledge, there were other avenues that Rav Kook was bringing in, just a certain worldliness that they weren't able to catch. So there's no doubt that I wasn't able to catch everything or even a modicum of what there is to offer. But I think one of the reasons that Rav Kook's writing is sort of shelved is because it's a closed book to a lot of people without being able to kind of navigate the various different, and, and nowadays we have the ability to sort of, we have the help of, of computers and we have the help of cross-referencing other things that Rav Kook has written. And there are other people who have already written in Hebrew that have sort of opened it up to translate it from Rav Kook's Hebrew into a sort of more modern Hebrew, um, which can sort of aid that experience of learning Rav Kook. Yeah, it's interesting. I um, Just to put a plug out for Beyond Rav Dovdal Sefer, which should be coming out soon, and obviously uh, seems like an amazing contribution. <clears throat> Excuse me, in Hebrew, there's a rabbi named Chagai London who has done some really extraordinary work, kind of what Rav Dovdal was saying earlier, uh, translating Rav Kook from Hebrew to sort of, I'd say, more contemporary Hebrew. Uh, he has a whole collection of Rav Kook's essays where he really sort of goes through in depth uh, the different parts, and it's an amazing contribution, not only because it makes it more accessible, but because he's able to reference other parts of Rav Kook's writings. So you really get a sense of how Rav Kook, sort of as a writer, is in many ways trying to create like almost like an organic unit where different parts of his writing are building off of each other. Um, I personally think that one of the challenges, obviously this is speculative, but I think that one of the challenges that English-speaking audiences, especially people who are trained um, in like, you know, the contemporary sort of yeshiva system have with Rav Kook, I think is that just the language itself is, is so aspirational. And I think that, you know, a lot of times when you read really aspirational language in English, you know, a lot of times you feel like, oh my God, like this is so aspirational, it's touchy-feely, I don't know if this is for me. Israelis, I think oftentimes, and because of what's going on in Israel and the experience of living in Israel and really like living an aspirational existence, that language really speaks to Israelis and speaks to the language of what sort of people in Israel are sort of working with. I think there's a reason why in the religious Zionist Yeshivot, Rav Kook is that popular, because again, the language he's talking is the language that people are living and people are experiencing. Obviously, people are aspiring in the U.S. too, but I think that the aspirational dimension expresses itself differently. In fact, it's interesting, in all of Rav Salvechik's writings, he only quotes Rav Kook once. And actually, that's coming up in the context of uh, Yom Kippur. He has an essay called Shlichut in the book Yimei Zikaron, 
where he references Rav Cook there, based on Rav Cook's commentary at the end of Shimon Esrei, about Elokai, Ad Shalom, the Tzad, Te'ino Kedai. So there, Salvage quotes Rav Cook, and um, I think it's the only time in all of his writings where he quotes Rav Cook, and it sort of makes sense because Rav Salvejik is sort of writing a very different style than Rav Cook, and it doesn't have this sort of aspirational feel. It has a different feel, it has a more existential feel, but it doesn't have that sort of existential feel. And in Hebrew, I think oftentimes it, it comes off the tongue more naturally. In English, oftentimes it's not as easy to access. So I thought that would be a nice sort of prelude to maybe really dive in to the passage here from Rav Cook. Uh, Rav Dovel maybe could speak for a few minutes about what this passage is, where, where it's from. And I thought it'd be fun if we sort of back and forth from the Hebrew to the English, because obviously we're speaking here in English, and you did an amazing work translating this into English. But I think doing it both in Hebrew and in English was sort of really capture the dynamism here of what's going on. It's not only that we're learning Rav Cook, but you're sort of translating Rav Cook into a language. And with that language comes so much sort of added dimensions to it. And I think sort of talking that through is also valuable. Sure. So just to speak to the aspirational part of Rav Cook's writing and why that's so challenging to translate into English. Um, one of the things that made my editor so uh, livid when, when they were trying to uh, make sure that my translation was faithful to Rav Cook's writing as well as my own is that I oftentimes had to break up the sentences where you just have to put a period in the middle of Rav Cook's writing because since he's, number one, writing in this free thought sort of experiment, just jumping off of one idea to another, and his use of the letter Vav to be another end in the sentence just becomes incredibly run on. But part of that is the aspirational nature of what he's doing. You know, it's like, and this could lead to this, and this could lead to this, and this could lead to this. So it will be fun to try to move back and forth between the Hebrew and the English. The piece that we have here uh, in front of us today is from the second parak of Or Satora, just to speak maybe for a minute about how the book Or Satora was put together, because Rav Cook did not write Or Satora. Rav Cook, as I mentioned before, wrote very little, he, meaning he wrote a ton, but he wrote very little that was put into book form in his lifetime. He wrote the Sefer Reish Milin, which was published in his lifetime. He wrote the first uh, three prakam of Orsa Torah, as, of, excuse me, of Orsa Tshuva, um, as a standalone work, which he called the Gerasa Tshuva. He writes about it in one of his letters that he sent to, uh, to one of his Talmidim. And he was very excited about this Igerasa Tshuva. And then later, Rav Tzvi Yehuda added other things. It was printed in his lifetime. He wrote an introduction to it. And he also wrote, um, he wrote on Olatraya. He wrote the, the Siddur with the commentary of Rav Kook, um, which was also added to by Rav Tzvi Yehuda later. And it's interesting that Rav Kook decided to sort of run to the letters of the Aleph Beis and the Siddur as sort of, those are really the two main books that he wrote. Um, I think that speaks a lot to Rav Kook in terms of who he was. And uh, both of those books he actually wrote and then put them out into the world um, in the middle of the First World War. That's when he really start, started doing this work on the Aleph Beis and on the Siddur. And on a certain level, it's like hard, it's like certainly tempting and it's hard not to see Rav Kook writing these books as sort of like his security blanket, like running back to the Aleph Beis and to the Siddur, which is where Rav Kook ultimately found himself. He was a very ecstatic type of personality. And it's really interesting because in the introduction, to Oros HaTorah, which was published in 1940, five years after Rav Kook passed away. So Rav Tzvi Yehuda writes that he is sort of playing off of the same, it was right in the middle of the Holocaust, and Rav Tzvi Yehuda says that, you know, he's sort of pulling a page out of his father's book, and he even quotes the introduction to Rav Milan, where Rav Kook says that during turbulent times, you have to like sort of run to your security blanket. And it is interesting, and we won't get sidetracked this for now, but we'll leave it for another time or someone to write a PhD on it, that Rav Avram Yitzchak HaKohen Cook, the father, ran to the Aleph Beis and ran to the Siddur, whereas Rav Tzvi Yehuda ran to Torah. And I think that really speaks to their personalities. We could speak more about the, the two of them another time. But Rav Tzvi Yehuda ran to uh, Rav Cook's writings on Torah and organized them. I would say uh, 
most of the Sefer comes from two sources. There were a few places. One of the things I did in the Sefer is I tried to locate the original manuscript source of where Rav Kook wrote it, and I was successful almost always. Um, there were maybe two or three times when I had to write unknown source because I couldn't find it, but most of the sources uh, are from Shmon Kvatsim, which is the eight notebooks that Rav Kook wrote and really embody his free-flowing thought of just page after page with no titles and no... It's just line after... There's no spaces or no paragraphs. It's just uh, notebooks that are filled with his writings. And the other... Um, the other source that things are called from is something called Pinkase Raya, which is very similar to the Shmona Kvatsim, a little bit less circulated, and even Shmona Kvatsim is more recent. And Ritzvi Yehuda sort of went through those and pulled out all of the different writings and organized them. And what's interesting is that the first uh, three books of Shmona Kvatsim are almost like 90% of what you find from Shmona Kvatsim. You don't really find anything from the later books, and that sort of gives the impression um, that Rav Kook was basically meaning Ratsu Yehuda Kuk, was basically just wanting to put out whatever he could, and he didn't get through everything, and he's like, I'll, I'll put out volume one, and I'll get to volume two later. So what we're in right now is um, the second chapter of Oros Torah, and uh, I guess you'll start us off with the reading, but to start us off with learning, but we're in the second chapter of Oros Torah, which is all about Torah Lishma. And one of the interesting things about Rav Kook is that he came from, on his father's side, a student of the Vlad Yeshiva, his father, Rishlomo Zalman Kuk, was a student in Volusian, was a staunch, you know, Lithuanian vanguard, old school, you know, uh, learning approach. And his mother was a Chabad Hasida from the Tzemach Tzedek, uh, from that, from those, from those Hasidim of the Hasidim of the Tzemach Tzedek. And the Rav Kook sort of found himself in the middle of this fierce debate that was sort of raging about how exactly should one approach Torah? Should it be more in the way of Torah lishma? of the Volusian school, or more of the Torah Lishma of the Baal Shem Tov's approach, which is more ecstatic and dveikus-oriented. So we'll jump right into the text. And the original text is from Pinkase Raya, volume 3, on page 70. Okay, so let's get started with the learning. So the passage begins by saying, Ivyan Torah Lishma L'Shem HaTorah. So I'm reading here from the translation. The concept of Torah Lishma means studying Torah for the Torah's sake. Let's continue. I'm already feeling as I'm reading this. I don't know where to stop. So I'll, I'll, I'll read the rest of the translation. So it says, For it is the will of Hashem, blessed be He, that the reality of His wisdom be actualized a reality is more delightful, sublime, than one can possibly imagine. And before Rav Delva, you give us some more uh, Rashi here as to what exactly is going on. I can tell you, me, as somebody who doesn't have nearly as much experience as you do in the world of Rav Cook. so the context here is, I think, is really important because you read this, and I think as sort of somebody reading it for the first time, so it, it definitely seems a little overwhelming, right? Obviously, you're right, it's hard to know where to stop, and even sort of unpacking the words here. In other words, to say that um, Hashem is the that the reality of his wisdom be actualized, right? So again, we can sort of unpack that. But how sort of do you bring this down, this very sort of flowery language, very powerful language, how do you bring it down to some more practical sort of concepts that really emerge from Cook's writing? Okay, so um, the first thing that sort of jumps off the page is it says, that the goal of learning Torah lishma, which is a weighty statement that, how exactly to translate those words is really what this entire discussion is all about. To learn Torah for its own sake, let's translate it like that simply, is l'shem ha-Torah, for the sake of the Torah itself. And what Rav Kook does when he's talking about, the, like as you were pointing out before, the mitzias ha which is the Ratzon Hashem, 
that the wisdom of Hashem, which Hashem wants to bring into the world, that it, this is something which is more nechmad and more mu'ula. This is greater and more sublime than anything that a person could even imagine. What this sounds like is that Rav Kook is drawing very heavily, and most people assume that this is the case, drawing very heavily here from the Sefer Nefesh HaChaim. Nefesh HaChaim's approach to learning Torah is that it's for the sake of understanding the Torah itself. Learning Torah is a mitzvah like any other mitzvah, and of course, mitzvahs are about fulfilling the will of Hashem, but just like you fulfill the will of Hashem by shaking a lulv and esrog on sukkis, there is a mitzvah of understanding Torah and connecting to the Torah through understanding the text, independent of an attempt to sort of have a passional experience with the divine, the experience is simply the mitzvah is shaking a lulav on sukkis is understanding Torah when you're learning it. And Rav Kook writes here that the mitzvah hachachma, this trying to, act, trying to actualize Hashem's wisdom is really an independent goal that Hashem has. There's, there's a mitzvah that Hashem wants to bring about a certain thing in the world by bringing his wisdom into the world. And that's really all we're trying to do. There's no, you don't really get any sense here of, okay, we're fulfilling the will of God, but the goal here is to bring Hashem's chachma down into the world. That's step number one. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, when I read this and I think about sort of like what, what exactly that means. So, you know, obviously there is the mitzvah of Talmud Torah, which you alluded to before, and the classic concept of Torah Lishma as being Lishema Torah certainly has its deep roots in the Vlajan tradition, right? But what's interesting is, is that, you know, Rav Kook here seems to be describing something which is sort of totally independent of, let's say, for example, practical halacha. In other words, when he's saying the Shema Torah, so you know there could be sort of an inclination to say that the purpose of Torah is functional, it's practical, right? that you learn the Torah with the goal of actualizing it. But Rav Kook here channeling sort of that tradition is sort of trying to argue, I think, that independently of whether or not you actualize it, right, kind of what you were saying before, but sort of just bringing that energy, what exactly that energy is, I think is somewhat vague here, but bringing that energy into the world is sort of independently valuable. So you can imagine, like in Rukuk's terminology, or like in the Torah Shema terminology, so if you were to study only Beit Shammai, okay, let's say, for example, you open up a yeshiva that only studied Beit Shammai, and, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think you get a lot of students, but theoretically, like let's say, imagine you only wanted to open up a yeshiva where they dafka study the, the shitas in the normative halacha, which we don't paskin like, right? So what would be the value of that? So I think what Rav Kook would say here is that, no, it's still the Shema Torah, right, exactly for this reason, because it is the will of God, right, that the reality of his wisdom be actualized. So even if that comes through Beit Shammai, right, that's still part of the Chetzal Shel Torah. So it's still part of the Chetzal Shel Torah. We still learn it, right, even though it doesn't have practical relevance, it still has independent relevance because it's still connecting you to the ultimate source. So part of the irony of that is that that exact language and that exact argument is found in the fifth parak of the Sefer Tanya. Uh, Tanya says that the goal of studying Torah is to study Torah even if it's somehow irrelevant to the immediate uh, experience of what, you're, what, you're, what you have right in front of you. If, if, for example, we're trying to figure out if Reuven claims from Shimon X amount of money under such and such circumstances, the Tanya writes explicitly, even if that would never happen in the history of the world, even if that case never came before a judge, just knowing what Hashem would think about that is bringing Chachmas Hashem into the world, which is the goal of Talmud Torah, but still we haven't descended into the realm of talking about dveikos Bashem. just simply even, I think there, there would be a point of, uh, maybe, the, maybe it's less ironic than we think, there's, there's a point of agreement between the Balatanya and Rav uh, Chaim Velazhner that the bringing of Torah into the world, just to understand what does Hashem think about this, is in of itself a valuable ends. 
Yeah, I actually really like it. And one of the uh, translations that you did here, I think this is like a really important point because the next line says, You translate that as it contains no deficiency except from our perspective because we are entrenched in our bodies and do not recognize the full grander strength and supremacy of this reality, which I think is a really powerful observation because instinctively, if you start thinking about Torah in functional terms, you can get frustrated. So I think what Rav Hook is sort of pointing out here is, is that if you understood, right, the profundity of what's going on here, even if it wasn't practical right now, right, you, you would still want to engage it. So I think, I think the language here of the deficiency is from our perspective, meaning if you believe that Torah is ultimately rooted in an ultimate source, so even if it doesn't express itself right now in the practical world, it's still part of that ultimate reality. If we can't grasp that, that's a sort of limitation on us and not a limitation on the text itself. And I think that's a really sort of inspiring way to think about learning. You know, I think you know, both of us are, are Gemara Rebbeim in, in, uh, in Yeshiva, and you know, I think one of the frustrations people have oftentimes when they learn is, you know, in what way is this relevant? But this gets to your, your point earlier, which is that Rav Kook is sort of balancing your different dimensions, that there's a Torah Shema Velaj and Pish, and there's also the Torah, there's also the clinging to God, yearning to God element. And I think Rav Kook is tell, reminding us here that even if you access a piece of the Torah or a piece of Gemara, which doesn't seem relevant, and even if you want to go the route of saying, well, yes, Torah Lishma, I'm understanding it on its own intellectual space, realize that there's something more here. Right, that the deficiency is ours and not necessarily a function of the divine. I'll just end by saying there's a really pa- amazing passage in the Yerushalmi, where the Yerushalmi says, it quotes the Pasuk from Devarim, where it says, Ki lo davareki, I think that's the Pasuk, or, and lo davareku, right, Mikem. And the, the Yerushalmi says that, you know, the Pasuk is saying that it is not something which is empty. So Yerushalmi says, im reik, if you perceive it as empty, it's Mikem, it's because you're empty. In other words, the emptiness is with you and not with the text. I think that's like an important lesson in general for thinking about how to engage wisdom in the situations where you don't necessarily often understand exactly the nature of the divinity when you're sort of looking at it at first glance. So I have two things. First of all, there's a, talking and learning, there's a Sefer, a little bit less common uh, on the bookshelf, Sefer from the Torah Tamima, uh, from Baruch Levi Epstein, the son of the Aruch HaShulchan, called Baruch Sh'amar. It's uh, on the Siddur, and I believe there's also some volumes on Chumash, on that Pasuk of I believe he writes there on that Yerushalmi. He quotes the Yerushalmi, and then he says, Because people, when they sort of think about uh, the fringe elements of learning, Rav Kook writes somewhere in, in, um, in Orsa Torah, a little bit later, that every aspect of Torah is like oxygen. And the Gemara says already that a person shouldn't say, you know, Shmuanah, this one, this, this particular Shmua is, is, is beautiful, and this particular Shmua from the Gemara, this teaching from the Gemara is, is, is not so beautiful. Uh, every single part is, and he, he even says, even the Dikdukim, you know, like you ever get to those Rashis, where it's like Rashis trying to figure out like a, some Dikduk, and, and you're just like, you're not sure how to wrap your head around this. So if Cook says that you only ask the question, like, why do I need to learn this if you don't realize that this thing is oxygen? Rav Cook said that like, when a person is, uh, is asking, why should I take the next breath? So you know that there's like, something like, really unbalanced about that person. If, they, if, they, if they're asking, why should I take this next breath? If a person starts to realize that the Chachma of the Torah, irrespective of whether it's a gematria or it seems to be an irrelevant or somewhat unlikely halachic scenario that's going to take place, or it's trying to understand some nuance and some esoteric piece uh, of Torah understanding, at the end of the day, if you take two steps back and you realize there's a mitzvah to understand the Torah and to understand every aspect of the Torah, 
every nuance of the Torah, every detail of the Torah begs to be understood because Hashem commands it as such. So then we can begin to sort of like, it's okay, whatever it is that we're learning, we're already doing the mitzvah of Talmud Torah. And if we're doing it lishma, then it's l'shem HaTorah. So I actually think this is a perfect segue to sort of move into the next piece. Where you, the Rav Kook goes on, again, I'm reading from the translation, where you say, now the wisdom of the Torah is a divine revelation according to his blessed will that results from our toil and study. And just to, for all the listeners, you should know that uh, in Rav Davidov's very impressive work here, he not only has a translation, but he has a commentary. So there's a running commentary here to give you more context to each of these lines, because these lines really are deep and profound, but extremely difficult sometimes to digest. So maybe you could talk a little bit here about what Rav Kook is adding. I think one of the challenges when you read Rav Kook, you say, wait a second, there's a lot of repetition. But there isn't a lot of repetition. There's a lot of profundity. And the question is, you know, what exactly is going on? You mentioned before the dialectic between different perceptions of Torah and Shema. So what exactly is he sort of moving on to here? Okay, so before, I think here is where Rav Kook really begins to synthesize the approach of Rav Chaim Velazhner and let's call it the Balatanya or perhaps the Baal Shem Tov. But before we do that, before we synthesize, I just want to sharpen the distinction between the two of them. And there's a classic joke that, you know, floats around the yeshivos that I think really highlights the distinction between Torah Lishma in the base medrash of uh, Velazhen and in the base medrash of, let's say, Mezrich. Um, the joke goes like this. There's two people sitting b'chavrusa. One of them is a chassid and the other one is, we'll call them a snagid because that's how they like to be self-identified. Um, and the two of them are sitting and learning together and they get up to a passage in the Gemara that talks about that when, when uh, Rav Yonason ben Uziel would sit and learn, he would learn with such fiery passion that the birds flying overhead would just burst into flames as he was in the middle of his study. And the chassid is sitting there reading this Gemara, it's a, in Masech Sukkah, and he says to his chavrusa across the table, did you just, you, did you read that Gemara? Do you see what, what the Gemara says? And he says, he says yeah, what, what's your point? So he says, when birds flew over his head, they would just burst into flames. And he would say, yeah, what, what's your point? And the chassid says, well, they, they just exploded. And the, and the chavrusa sitting across from him says, well, I just want to know whose birds there and how much money he's owed. Right? Like yeah. the, it's funny because um, I, I think you can say this, you can see the same thing periodically in Shas with regard to Tosfot. Every once in a while you'd be learning a sugyul, it'd be like a really wacky story. I'm pretty sure that somewhere in Brachot there's a story about someone davening and there's a seven-headed monster. And every time he davens, in Kedushin, every time he davens, a, a head falls off. And like there's a seven-headed monster and somebody's davening and heads are falling off. I think Tosfot wants to know something like, well, he shouldn't have davened because it was Makom Sakan. Right? In other words, Tosfot's interested sort of in like the halachic nafkaminas or the practical applications of seven-headed monsters impacting uh, prayer. Exactly what he asked, I don't remember offhand, but it is interesting that Tosfot doesn't comment that frequently on the Agadatas. And again, he has sort of that similar attitude that's sort of like, you know, what we're zeroing in on. Sure, the Marshal over there in that Gemara says that the seven bowings that knock off the seven heads are the seven bowings that we have in Shemonestri. One in the beginning of the first bracha, the end of the first bracha, modim, uh, the end of modim by, uh, by the end of that bracha, and then the three that we take at the end. And so, like, all of a sudden you go from the seven-headed monster Gemara to this very practical, this is the way that we sort of choreograph the Shemonestri. And so the two of those kind of work in balance when you have something which seems so out there, so disconnected, what's happening here is like, how do you ground that in something beyond getting so excited that there's birds blowing up or there's seven-headed monsters? How do we ground that in something that's very practical? Yeah, I mean, um, I think also just to sort of move to sort of the last piece here, of Cook, we're skipping a little bit for anybody who's following along line by line here. But um, we'll try and get all the different dimensions here of this text. And just sort of to sort of end to the last piece, 
Um, where Rav Cook says, he says, and since this is the will of the Holy One, blessed be he, the correct practice for man to study and of his love for the great light that Hashem wants to reveal in creation, so that it will continue to grow. Now, again, I read, honestly, a little dissonance here. Tell me if you think this is a fair reading. I read somewhat of a dissonance because initially, when Rav Cook was talking, he was using the language of Torah Lashem Lashem HaTorah, and obviously that has deep roots in the Velushan tradition. But here there is sort of some type of subtle switch, and I think that you alluded to it before, when he talks about the idea that a person will study out of love for the great light, right, that Hashem wants to reveal in creation, it does sound a little functional. In other words, it doesn't sound here like classical Torah Lishma. Obviously, Torah Lishma is a massive topic. If you want to read about it, you can read Rabbi Lamb's dissertation. But basically, it sounds here that there is a functional element, that it's not just about, or it's not exclusively about Torah for its own sake. But it's a belief that somehow when you learn it, right, you reveal the great light and that it will, it, I mean, in this case, the light or the individual will actually sort of uh, continue to grow. In fact, Rav Cook ends by saying, and this is all the more true of one who innovates within Torah, right? This is even better. Now, again, there's probably a lot of mystical underpinnings here about the or and stuff being revealed through the Torah. But I do think there's something powerful here, which is not just the element of I'm going to learn Bav Metziah because I have a mitzvah to learn Bav Metziah. I'm going to learn Beit Shammai because the Chavshel Torah is something deeper, something about me gaining something. If you think about like a squeezer, you know, when you squeeze lemon, you squeeze every piece of juice out of that lemon. So so to here, trying to squeeze out Beit Shammai. Like Beit Shammai is not just enough for me to learn what you say. I need to squeeze out how what you're doing is facilitating or. So sort of how would you sort of put these two pieces together to sort of make it more harmonious? Yes, so you couldn't have set it up better. I think that the linchpin to understanding, and I invite everyone to read the commentary where they'll be able to have a lengthier uh, and more thorough discussion about this. Um, the way that Rav Kook bridges the sort of, I have to understand the Torah in order to fulfill the mitzvah of understanding the Torah. Hashem wants his will to be revealed in the world. He wants his chachma to be revealed in the world. And no matter how sterile that conversation seems to be, there's room for it, and it's what the mitzvah essentially is. And on the other hand, this idea that it's about connecting to Hashem and it's about somehow wrapping oneself around uh, the Torah in a way where the Torah then fills their head with all the thoughts of the divine. It sounds like, like you were saying before, a very mystical type of idea. And the linchpin to understanding of Cook's synthesis of this is the last line that he says, which he alludes to earlier in the piece, which we skipped, that chidushe Torah is the way that we can sort of bridge the gap between the two of these. Because if we understand fundamentally, you were talking about at the beginning of the, of, of the podcast, going back and speaking to Rabbi Kiva Eger and speaking to uh, the, the sages of, of, the, of the Gemara and other people throughout Jewish history who were engaged in the pursuit of understanding the Torah. So if we understand that there's a mitzvah to understand what the Torah says, then by definition what happens is the following. And I think this is how Rav Cook sort of goes beyond the either-or trap of Velazhin or the Baal Shem Tov. What he says is there's a mitzvah to understand Torah of course, and Hashem wants to reveal that Torah. And automatically, when you understand a text, it sort of interfaces with you, and something new is born out of that, that we call that chidushe Torah. Anytime a person understands any text, even what we're doing here today, so there's a new understanding of Torah that's brought down into the world. And when there's more Torah brought into the world, so then that is the first line. Inyan Torah l'shema l'shem ha-Torah. I've now brought more chachmas Hashem into the world, but it's interacted with me. And so therefore, there's fundamentally no difference between a chiddush that David Silverstein or David Weinberg has in the year, you know, Tav Shin Pei Gimel, or a chiddush of Rabbi Kivir. Maybe there's a, a, a question about, you know, the level of scholarship in the chiddush. 
But if there's a small chiddush that you or I bring to the Torah, we've actualized bringing more understanding of the Torah into the world. Now, Rav Cook is doing here, and he really expresses that so beautifully early in the piece, and I invite everybody to look at it more carefully, and maybe that's part of what this podcast is about, you know, to continue this conversation outside of the podcast. What Rav Cook seems to say is that in the same way that the Torah says, echad, Adam and Chava come together, and they become one. Rashi's explanation of that is, the oneness is not the way that you classically think of that, but rather in the birth of a child. Right? How do you become one with Hashem? There's no way that a person can become one with Hashem. Hashem is completely beyond. The only way a person can become one with Hashem is having a kiviachal child with Hashem. And so you can have a brain child with Hashem. And the way that you do that is by understanding the Torah. And in doing so, Rav Kook makes this sonic leap beyond the machlokes between Rav Chaim Velazhner on the one hand, who says, you need to understand the Torah. Rav Kook says, of course you need to understand the Torah. Torah l'shema is l'shema Torah. But once you understand the Torah, that means that Hashem has just given you a piece of his Torah and you gestate that and give birth to a new idea. Is that not dveikus b'Hashem? Is that not bringing out a oneness between you and Hashem through the Torah, which is beyond anything that you could ever do to connect Hashem other than that? So Rav Kook in doing that says, understanding the Torah leads to chidushe Torah, and in doing so, you just were with the Bashefer, you just created some new union with Hashem. And to be able to do that, you know, I just, I'll, I'll add this one little thing and then we'll, we'll maybe close up. Rav Kook was a lover of like almost everything in the whole world. The one place where you see that Rav Kook sort of really goes at something is by some of the early versions of Christianity. Rav Kook takes very serious issue. Part of it has to do with Rav Kook's love of Am Yisrael and the replacement the, you know, theology of, of Christianity. But part of that also is because you see here in this piece sort of like the antidote to that notion of like this very bizarre thing that, you know, Hashem gives birth to something together with a person. Rav Kook says, we have something like that in our tradition. He writes this explicitly elsewhere. But it's with, through learning Torah, through chidushi Torah, through bringing something into the world, it's not the way that they understood that. But what is happening is there truly is a dveikus with Hashem that's taking place in the context of his Torah, and that's really something that you find throughout the entire Sefer Orsa Torah that Rav Tzvi Yehuda did an amazing job of doing, is showing how the beginning, the middle, and the end of every chapter goes through Torah, Hashem, and the Jewish people. And where the Jewish people are able to add something to this world is by learning the Torah, being mechadesh, something new, and in doing so, we both understand the Torah, bring about the will of Hashem, of bringing more Chachma into the world, and being Davok to Hashem. Okay, Rev. Davidal, that was an extraordinary opportunity for me to not only uh, spend time with you and to engage in your new book, but also to um, really unpack some of the extraordinary wisdom of Rev. Cook. I'll just end this podcast with a short anecdote that I think captures sort of what we're doing here and what sort of this larger podcast is all about, the idea of talking and learning. Um, there's a famous uh, story about Professor David Weiss-Halivni, say, Chazak Levracho, passed away and not that long ago, uh, he writes in his memoirs that when he was in, I think, in Auschwitz, one of the one of the camps. So one day he was working, and all of a sudden he got to his uh, spot where he's supposed to engage in his daily work, and he saw one of the soldiers had a sandwich that was wrapped in a page of the Shulchan Aruch. And instinctively, he saw the page of the Shulchan Aruch, and he was sort of emotionally so overwhelmed that he fell to his knees, and the soldiers sort of reacted like all the soldiers did then. He sort of got his gun ready to shoot. And Professor Alivni uh, begs the soldier and says, can I please have that page? And for some reason, uh, the soldier said, okay. And the soldier gave him this page. And he said it was like literally like contraband. And if you got caught with this you know, page of Shulchan Aruch in the camps, you would have been killed. 
but he said that they guarded this page. He said the page was smeared with all this grease from the food and all different letters were sort of erased. But he said every night when they got back to the barracks, so all the Jews who had a background in rabbinics and understanding the larger world of Tarsha Baal would sit around and try and piece together the texts from memory. They were engaging in talking and learning. And it's a powerful metaphor for thinking about sort of this conversation as being something which is so inspiring and so meaningful that even in a place like that, even a situation where Jews literally have nothing, just the opportunity um, to talk and learning, even momentarily, to put pieces together, to try and recreate something, right? It gave them some sense of strength. And therefore, I just want to thank my friend, Davido, for joining me on the podcast today. I also want to thank uh, Shiva Raita for this incredible opportunity for sharing Torah and uh, wishing everybody a Shana Tova. And uh, thank you again, Rav Davido, for joining me.